Good morning, Linworth. Hope everyone's doing well, staying dry mostly. Glad you could make it out here through the rain. So we're going to just stand up and worship together as people are coming in. Lord, I find you in the seeking. Lord, I find you in the doubt.
his mercy is born It's stronger than darkness and new every morn Our sins they are many but his mercy is born What love could remember, no wrongs we have done Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sound Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore Our sins, they are many, his mercy is Is 
mercy is more Our sins, they are many But His mercy is more Our sins, they are many His mercy is more Amen Because of that mercy that we sing that he is good and he is there and he protects and he cares. Sing this out. Deeper still as you call me. 
Father, thank you so much that you are perfect. You are loving us perfectly. Something that sometimes we don't understand, can't comprehend how, but you do. I just pray that as we're here, that we are receptive to your word, that you'd speak through Chris. Just have us in fellowship with you and with your body, God. In your son's name. All right, kiddos, you can go on back, go to your classes. Everybody just turn around, say hi to someone, especially if you don't know who they are, ask their name, introduce yourself. All right. everybody. You guys can take a seat. Lots of great fellowship going on this morning. Well, my name is Doug Riggle. I'm Mission Development Director here at Linworth Road Church. I want to just welcome everyone this morning. Thank you for coming on this dreary, rainy, wet Sunday. Um, welcome to you guys online as well. Just thank you for being here and showing up digitally. It's hard to say. A um, couple of announcements for you this morning. If this is your first time, special welcome to you. Thank you for coming. Um, either in your Bible app or in the, um, I always want to say pew, in the chair in front of you is a Connect card. So if you can grab that, drop that in the back, um, drop that in the, boy, I'm going back to like old times. Drop it in the box in the lobby or at the Welcome Center um, and check mark that it's your first time. We've got a special gift for you too at the Welcome Center if this is your first time here this morning. But it's also a great way to get information about Linworth information about our programs, our ministries. Um, I'm gonna cue you here in a few minutes for some things you could write on the Connect card as well for more information. As, um, so prayer request to fill it out, drop it in the box. Be great if everyone did that. I'm sure the office staff would love that, but fill it up, fill it up with questions and comments and prayer requests. Um, first uh, announcement. So our leadership retreat is on August 27th. Um, from 8.30 till 1 p.m. at the Park of Roses in the shelter there. Um, there's going to be more information coming soon, but Robbie McAllister is going to come up and speak. Uh, if you don't know him, he's a great Southern gentleman with a lot of great experience uh, leading uh, missions work around the globe and just has a big passion for the lost. And so we're going to want to not uh, make sure you don't want to miss that. So mark that date, August 27th in your calendar. Um, next up. 
ministry volunteers. So I've said this before, our faith is not a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, spectator sport. Our faith is active. So we always need people signing up and, and helping the work that goes here on Sunday mornings, other mission, um, missions work going on, other opportunities to serve in our community. Three specific ones, which I know we talked about last week, Cross Crew, our children's ministry, could use some support right now. Lifeline, our high school ministry, and our worship slash tech team. So, uh, and I've, I've got to say this, after that first song, we need probably someone up here who can help us learn how to clap in time with the beat. We didn't do a good job this morning, church. I'm just gonna say that. Um, but write in your connect card to either worship or either um, cross crew or lifeline. Write that in the connect card if you'd like more information on how to serve in those areas as well. And then finally, on Sunday, July 31st, anytime that we have a month with five Sundays in it, we do our celebration service. So it's a great time to hear our amazing testimonies, baptisms, um, uh, what else do we do? We do one more thing, baby dedications, that's the thing. So if you've got any of those things, you've not done that, if you've not been baptized yet, uh, contact the church office and let them know you'd like to consider that for that Sunday. Um, if there's new, any new babies, it seems like there are always new babies here, but if there's any new babies that haven't been dedicated yet and you'd like to do that as well, uh, just mark that down on your Connect card or email the office and someone will get back in touch with you. And now I'd like to welcome up Chris on our uh, special topic, don't let your dreams die. It's a good one. Morning. Oh, it's nice to be back. It's my first time back from a sabbatical. Um, thought I'd start with a, just a little fun note, my favorite meme from the past week. I found a recipe from Morocco for homemade dinner rolls. It called for fresh thyme, but mine was outdated. I used it anyway. You know, as I reminisce, I really like that old-time Moroccan roll. <laughs> I said. That's right. That's right. That's right. I just thought we'd start off with a little bit of fun this morning. And that's what I did on my sabbatical. I read memes. <laughs> Do you know where we were last year at this time? We were outside. Do you believe that? Last summer, we were outside uh, in the summer. So glad on a morning like this to be able to be back inside. Well, all, all kidding aside, I really did enjoy my sabbatical, and I want to thank you for supporting it. And I want to thank you as a church for recognizing the need for the spiritual and emotional health of our pastors. And I did rest, um, but I also read quite a bit. And I slowed down to be with Jesus for long stretches of time. And in one of my readings, a phrase pierced my heart as if the Holy Spirit spoke it to me directly. It exploded off the page, not only because of its urgent message, but because it tied together so much of what I had think, been thinking about into a single phrase. And that phrase is, don't let your dreams die. Why are our dreams so vulnerable? Well, one of the principal reasons is that we have a spiritual adversary who does not want us to dream of what the person we could become 
or what we could do within the kingdom of God. Jesus said this referring to our spiritual adversary. He says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I recently heard someone comment on this verse. He said, the devil did not come to borrow, bruise, or bother. He came to steal and to kill and to destroy. And one of his most effective tactics is to convince us that once we have sinned and really blown it, once we've been confronted with our imperfections, that our dreams of living for Christ are over. We may as well just keep on sinning or be content with something less. What our adversary doesn't want us to know is that following Jesus means a life of continual repentance and restoration. Proof of this, exhibit A, the leader of the early church, Peter. Now, I was reminded of this story recently because Louise and I have a, a very brief time of uh, reading scripture together before we fall asleep. And we read this story that we're going to look at in a moment. And then last Sunday, good friend uh, Ezekiel Gonzalez also shared this passage in the Hispanic service. So I had reason to be thinking about it. You remember Peter? Of course, many of you do. Days before Jesus' arrest, he was the one who boasted that he would never deny the Lord. He swore loyalty to Jesus in the face of his imminent death. In Jesus' hour of greatest need, even if everybody else falls away, Peter says, I will unflinchingly stand with you. And you know what happened next, right? Against such bold assertions of allegiance, Peter not once, not twice, but three times denied that he ever knew Jesus. That was a bad moment, right? It was me first, it was cowardice, it was betrayal. This the man whom Jesus had invested three and a half years of his life to. This the man who was part of an inner circle receiving focused attention from Jesus. Luke tells us that after the third denial, Jesus and Peter's eyes locked. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the grief in Jesus' face? And Peter turned away and wept bitterly. Certainly in his mind, his dreams had died that day. Well, we know today that wasn't the end of the story. Two days later, news spread that Jesus' body was no longer in the grave. And Peter, upon hearing it, ran to the tomb. But it was empty. But not too long afterwards, Jesus, in his resurrected body, appeared to his disciples, including Peter. He then appeared to them a second time. But Peter's awful night remained unaddressed and unresolved. And the question was still looming, could he ever truly return? And that, the answer to that question was revealed in the next appearance of Jesus. And so why don't you stand, and I'm going to read now our, this, this uh, story 
that becomes our story for today. We're, we're in this series called Conversations with Jesus, and we're just going to stick with that theme, that theme here today. And let me give you a page number. In John 21, it is page 907, all right? It's a really awesome story. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And then they said to him, we'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as, they, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. He said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved or, or hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is God's word. Go and take a seat. What's happening in this back and forth? Well, what's happening in this back and forth, we can say, is that Peter is not canceled. Peter was not canceled. He is not told that his sins leave him forever condemned. He is not told he is no longer of any use or of any value. And the result of this conversation was exponential. Peter's confidence, not in himself, but in Jesus, sets the stage for his restoration. With the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, Peter will go on and lead the early church, the young church, the, first, the starting of the church, a church that would grow and would multiply until it eventually became the greatest spiritual and social force in North Africa, in the Roman Empire, and eventually Asia and the world. So let's break this story down in 
this way. The question, the response, and the command. So if you're taking notes this morning in the back of your bulletin, this will help you, help you uh, keep track. The question, the response, the command. Let's pray. Father, through your Holy Spirit this morning, we ask you to open our eyes and do hear what no human being can do, and that is to help us to see and to grasp and to understand the very grace of you, Father, the grace that you have for us, the power of restoration, the power of your words to heal. And I pray that, God, you would do your work this morning and simply allow me and others who are involved to just work alongside of what you are already doing in the life of this church and in the life of this city. We pray for our members of our body, Father, that are hurting. Many are hurting or some with great medical needs. And we lift up the members of our body this morning that need um, healing from you, that need power from you. We lift up the members of our bodies, Father, that are discouraged, that are weary, that are run down through the travails of this life. We pray for them this morning, Father, whether they're here or watching online, that the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, the love the light of the Holy Spirit this morning would connect to their hearts, connecting their heart to your heart. Father, we, we yield to you this morning. Bring another level of surrender to us as we see, Father, how every pocket of your being is good. Every nook and cranny of your character is good. There's nothing manipulative or nothing evil or nothing self-serving that dwells within who you are, God. And may our confidence in who you are explode and burst forth this morning with new meaning and a, re a renewal of our mind and of our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. First question. Do you love me? Now, the first time Jesus asks this, he says, do you love me more than these? And what is he referring to? What is the these? Is it the fishing gear? Had Peter gone back to fishing as a vocation? I don't think that's it. Fishing itself had not been the problem. What fits the context better is that the these refers to the other six disciples sitting by the fire. Now, I don't think the question is, do you love them more than me? I think the question is, do you love me more than they love me? You see, there were hints of pride. There were hints of comparison and competitiveness in Peter's former boast that he would never betray Jesus. Now, another small detail we see is that Peter, Jesus refers to Peter as Simon. That had been his name before Jesus changed it to Peter, meaning the rock. That name change from Simon to Peter was meant to change the identity of Peter, how he saw himself and his personal vision. But here, Jesus resorts to using 
again, his first name, Simon, and it reminded Peter of his weakness. That those great promises he had made leading up to Jesus' death were issued from self-will, not by God's grace. And that the natural self is terribly weak. Now, why does Jesus ask three times? Did Peter not hear him? Was Jesus being cruel? You might remember a frustrated teacher or parent making you repeat an answer in order to humiliate you in front of your siblings or in front of your classmates. That wasn't Jesus' heart here. He asked him three times because Peter denied Jesus three times. Each affirmation that Peter gives now sinks deep into his heart and creates a new memory. Um, You might think of it as a healing memory. And he does it in front of the others as awkward and as painful as that must have been. Peter's restoration was public. It was open. He is restored by Jesus so that others can have confidence in him. This dark memory is not allowed a slow burn within Peter. Like a surgeon, Jesus says carefully and yet lovingly removed the illness. And we're also intrigued to ask the question, why begin with this question, do you love me? Why not will you serve me? Why not will you lead the church? Why not will you serve the poor? Why not will you preach the gospel? Why lead with this question? I think the answer is because love, love is the greatest motivation. Love is the greatest motivator. People, and you and me, right? We can do spiritual activities or we can try to do great things for God and we can do them for many reasons and with many motives. And I I just made a list here of what some of those alternative motives might be, ones that I've wrestled with all of them at one time or another in my heart, for example. Our motivation might be to quiet and accusing conscience. Our motivation might be compliance to rules in a legalistic sort of way. Our motivation might be to absolve some past guilt. Our motivation might be to maintain a reputation. Our motivation might be to attain moral perfection through my own strength, the religious self. Our motivation might be applause. Recognition from others. Our motivation might be respect in my community, even in my spiritual community. Respect among my peers. You know, the prophet Jeremiah said the heart is a really deceitful thing. And we often don't know our own hearts and why we do what we do. Now, I'm not suggesting here this morning, I'm not encouraging you to become overly introspective. I truly am not. If God has put something in your heart to do for him, I would counsel you to go for it and to continue to move forward in obeying God. But realize this. 
realize this, that over time, God works in us to purify why we do what we do. Through trials and through suffering, he burns off the motives that are not pure. If love, if love is not like a little kernel, a little seed growing within you, at some point, those ulterior motivations will not keep the flame going. They will not keep the dream alive. The greatest motivation is love. The greatest foundation is love. So, that's our first point, the question. Let's go to the second point now. Let's go to the second point, and that's the response. Do you love me? Jesus asks Peter, and Peter responds three times. Let's talk about that. And the response is, Lord, you know. Begins that way. Now, uh, just a little uh, backtracking here. Some commentators have brought out in this section that when Jesus spoke of love, he used a different Greek word. He used the Greek word agape. And when Peter responds, he used the word philo. The word agape is the highest of all loves in the Greek language. It refers to an unconditional divine love. It's love that's based on the giver's heart, not the receiver's merit. And then philo is a different kind of love. It's a friendship love. It's a bonding kind of love. And some commentators have thought that Jesus was asking the question, Peter, do you love me 100%? And Peter's responding, mm, no, about 60%. Um, I don't think that's the point. As a matter of fact, these two Greek words, agape and philo, in other places, are used interchangeably, and the context pointing to the reality that the Semitic differences really aren't that big. So I don't think that's the point of the passage. I believe the main point in the, is in the response that Peter keeps re repeating, Lord you know. Lord, you know. Now, why is this significant? It is significant because of the stark contrast of these responses to Peter's former boasts and his former boast of allegiance. Think of what Peter did not say to Jesus. This is how one author put it that I really liked. Jesus did not say, Jesus, I know my own heart, and I swear that I love you. He didn't say that. Peter says something like that once before, and had been dead wrong. Obviously, there could be no confidence in his self-knowledge. What confidence there could be would have to be in Christ's knowledge of him, warts and all. And notice this. In the first two responses, Peter says, Lord, you know. And then the third time, Peter feels hurt. He's starting to feel likely embarrassed. Again, remember, this conversation is happening in front of six others of his peers. And hurt, maybe embarrassed, he adds, Lord, you know all things. What is happening here? What's really going on? Well, Peter is coming face-to-face -face with God's omniscience. 
We sang that a little bit ago. God's omniscience. Peter is coming face to face with God's omniscience. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying God knows all. God's knowledge is not only vast, it is not only diversified across multiple fields, it is all comprehensive. Here's a little phrase that just sums it up in a few words. God knows everything about everything. Think about that. God knows everything about everything. He knows his knowledge reaches not only to the faraway galaxies, such as what has recently been seen, been seen by the Webb telescope, but it also penetrates into the deepest soul. And there's nothing hidden from his sight, including the secrets of the human heart. Now, Peter here is not staging a philosophical or academic conversation with Jesus about metaphysics. But get this too. This is powerful. Neither is he avoiding, is he? Neither is he deflecting. Neither is he rationalizing. While he stands in front of Jesus, he is also staring his failure straight in the eye. And he's saying to Jesus in so many words, you know me. You know all about me. You know my pride, my shallow commitments, my boast, my cowardice. How could you love me? You see, at the same moment, so to speak, at the same moment in time, two truths, not only intellectual, but strongly emotional, they confront Peter. They overwhelm him. And those two truths are one, a wonder at the love of an all-knowing God. And two, a holiness that strips him of any human pride. Jesus knows the worst about Peter, and he loves him anyway. This is so consistent with what the Bible teaches. For example, Romans 5.8. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, the other disciples were likely wondering about Peter. I mean, what else could go wrong with him? He denied Jesus in his greatest hour of need. What else could go wrong with him? I mean, look what happened to Judas. He turned away. Maybe Peter will turn away. But Jesus knew what was in Peter's heart. And to that knowledge, Peter appealed. Peter has seen in the piercing gaze of Jesus' eyes, a pierce, I mean, a gaze that can be terrifying on one hand, and assuring on the other. He has seen in the piercing gaze of Jesus' eyes a love that confronted his failure, but still loved him. That encounter would set Peter's heart on fire. It would shape his affections, and it rekindled his desires for a lifelong commitment of following Jesus, even to the point of being crucified upside down, which John will allude to in the passage after this one. Again, I can't say this better than James Montgomery Boyce. Here's what he says. We should say to Jesus when we're asked with the question, do you love me? Here's what we should say. 
He says, never say, I can do it, Lord. I know I can. I know my heart. Say rather, Lord, you know what is there. You put it there. You know what love I have for you. Take it and make it into something that will abound for your glory. Okay? So we had the question. We have now the response. And let's go to the final part of our outline. The the command. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter is restored in this moment and he is commissioned to care for and to guide and to protect and to lead and to pastor Jesus' new family, the church, the place where his people will now gather into a new community as the people of God, the new Israel, so to speak. And when Pastor Nick worked through this passage a few years ago, he made an excellent point, and that is that the, this whole restoration scene bears many of the same images as when Jesus first called Peter. Maybe some of you picked up on that. You thought, this story sounds really familiar. Now, it is hard to imagine, it's not hard to imagine, that Peter must have picked up on this. As he jumped into the water to tug this massive catch to the shore, memories must have flooded his heart of when he first began to follow Jesus. Let's take a look at that story. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. This is three and a half years earlier. This is like when the movies go backwards in order to fill in some missing information. Luke 5, chapter 1, is page 860 in the Bible in front of you. Again, three and a half years earlier, at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, here's what Luke said took place. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we're the fishermen here. We've toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This was Peter's first call to follow Jesus. Do you see the similarities? All over the place. First, a fishing drought. All of you who fish regularly know what this is like. I went fishing last night, and... 
my wife repeats what her mother said to her, uh, her dad when he went fishing. Don't, don't come home unless you catch something. Don't come home until you catch something. We need it for dinner tonight. Well, we did all we could. We, we came home empty-handed, but alas, we still ate. There is frustration in both accounts. There is a seemingly foolish command by Jesus to drop the nets to the other side. Then there's a catch so plentiful that the nets are breaking or about to break. Then there's amazement from experienced fishermen, something not easily come by, then are now. Then a recognition, then a recognition that Jesus is both incredibly holy and incredibly good. A recognition Recognition again that Peter experiences simultaneously happening in his mind at the same time, two truths colliding together. And then the conviction of sinfulness, the feeling, the visceral feeling of unworthiness. And then the final response, adoring worship because he loves me still. It's just amazing, right? Jesus recreates this scene for Peter's sake, for the sake of his restoration. It's not random. He wants Peter to remember the day that he called him. He wants to experientially take Peter back to that day in his memories. Why? Because if Jesus called him, he will finish the work and he will not abandon Peter. Peter, don't even have confidence in your own heart. The basis of your assurance is my choosing you and in my power to help you persevere. Jesus said just as much in John 15, 16. He said to all the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We know that the Father has chosen us when he begins to reorder and rework the desires of our heart. We begin to desire him. We begin to desire his word. We begin to desire connectedness to other believers. That is the evidence that his spirit is alive and working in us. And then finally, another thing to note is that in the same way, all of us are called to feed his sheep, to feed his people, to love and to care for his people. We're all called to this. We'll express it in different ways, right? But we are all called to feed, to care, to nurture, to develop to share the scriptures together with one another, to build each other up. We're all called to that. So we have the question in this story. We have the response. We have the command. And through this interaction with Jesus on this lakeside shore by a charcoal fire, Jesus establishes the visceral bookends of calling and restoration so that Peter is able to honestly address his past and to repent 
which simply means to have a change of mind, a change of heart, to embark in a new direction. And his dreams are reawakened. His dreams do not die. So what do we do with this story, 2022? What do we do with this? How does it affect us? First, this morning, let me ask you to, let me ask you to think about your dreams. Just do a mental inventory of your dreams. I like to think of these dreams in two different categories. One is your dreams may have revolved around becoming a certain kind of person. The person that you're becoming. Loving, kind, wise, gentle, passionate, resolute, people-oriented. And yet, sitting here this morning, the reality of life has worn you down and has revealed you to be angry, impatient, vengeful, inward, focused, exceedingly weary. The other category of dreams is what you do and how you serve and what you seek to accomplish within the kingdom of God. Maybe you had a dream of leading a small group or going on a mission trip or mentoring high school students or leading others into worship. Or maybe your dream was going into vocational ministry or even living overseas. You might have dreamed about how you could address some of the challenging cultural issues of our day and to stand up courageously for the truth. Or maybe you dreamed of doing something for the, to help the hungry or to volunteer in an urban ministry. Maybe you've dreamed about leading people to Jesus or serving the needs of refugees. You might have dreamed about teaching your own children or, or teaching our children in the ways and the pattern of Jesus. Now, I'll say this, that there is no doubt that I've lived long enough to know and have seen enough experiences in life to know that God reshapes some of our dreams over time and by redirecting them or reshaping them or changing them. Some of us might have needed a dose of realism in our assessment of our capacities or our spiritual gifts and how God's created us. And, and frankly, this process of the reshaping of our dreams over time along the way, it can actually help us connect with our deepest longing, our deepest desire. And our deepest longing and our deepest desire, what we've been created for and what we can rediscover as we become new in Christ is that we might know God and glorify him. Ignatius of Loyola, the famous uh, Jesuit priest, uh, writing in the 16th century, a contemporary author summarized some of his thoughts on this topic. He wrote, uh, he said, he wrote this. Ignatius was convinced 
that if the soul were truly in touch with its deepest desires, it would find itself wanting nothing more than to praise, reverence, and serve God. Wanting nothing more than to glorify God with one's life. It is the deepest desire of all and it is the ultimate source of all other desires. So God does, over time, reshape our dreams. And I'm not talking here this morning about this reshaping or redirecting process. What I'm talking about this morning is the death of a dream that my life can ever glorify God. And I think there are many reasons why this overarching dream might die inside of us. It might be discouragement. A lot of us these days are discouraged. We're discouraged about the church. We're discouraged about the direction of our culture, the state of our economy. Or we're, we're, we're blocked with fear, fear about the future, uncertainty about the future. Or maybe it's just apathy. I just no longer believe that my life can make a difference or mean anything. I think all of those reasons can be part of why our dreams die. But the thing I want to focus on this morning is just one thing. And it's because that our text points us to this. This one reason why for so many of us our dreams die. It is the point of this passage. It is the essence of Jesus' encounter with Peter. And it is the facing of my own imperfections. It is the facing of my own failures, my own disappointments. And if I face them without knowing that repentance and restoration is the way of life for a believer in Jesus, that combination of things, our failures, our imperfections, the devil convincing us that repentance and restoration is not the way of life for believers. That combination is what kills dreams. That combination is what puts dreams on the shelf. That combination is what makes us weary. That combination is what keeps us going through the motions of coming to church. Maybe even attending life group, maybe even giving our tithe without any joy or saying our prayers without experiencing the presence of God or mechanically reading our Bible. When dreams die, that's what it looks like if we keep coming to church. You know, as I relate this story of repentance and restoration to my own life, I would say, and I've had an opportunity on my sabbatical to think a little more holistically about my life, and, and, and one picture that came to my mind is that in the last 10 years particularly, about since 2013, I, I sense that God has been running a search light over my life, a search lamp. You know, imagine a big searchlight like at a prison camp. It's scanning the landscape. It turns night into day. And, and it just seems like the experiences that I have been through have 
exposed deep imperfections, disappointments, and failure in my own life on a number of different levels. I think another metaphor, if I can, if you'll forgive me for mixing metaphors, another metaphor I thought quite a bit about is that the last 10 years, I sense has been something of like a, 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 a season of winter. Ecclesiastes says that uh, uh, there are seasons and they change, they must change. And, and uh, I think it's a helpful metaphor to think about our own lives. Like where are we in that journey between spring, summer, fall, and winter? And I have felt in some ways, at some levels, the last 10 years, I've been in a season of winter. I think that's been true of our church here in some ways, in some ways. I think it's been true as well, even for our network of churches that we're a part of. It's been a winter season. The Lord has surfaced things in my own life. I just, I don't think I could have faced without some of the challenging circumstances. A stronghold of fear, the lack of accepting others for who they are, obsessive worrying, entrenched religious thinking that does not grasp grace, a, a, a petty kind of justice system where I judge God and what he's doing in my life by human standards. And all of it, as I allowed this searchlight to penetrate my heart, I keep coming back to this phrase, Father, how can you love me? How can you even use me? What? And why should I dream at all based on the level of my sinfulness? So you might ask the question, why am I still standing here? Why am I still standing here? Because through his grace, I have had moments of repentance and restoration just like Peter had. Moments when Jesus' person comes so fully into focus, it's like I can almost hear his voice. And that even though he knows me like no other, knows all about me, he still says, I chose you. And I'm sticking with you. And I will finish the work that I began. You see, that's the basis of my confidence. That's the basis of my insurance. It's not self-knowledge. What I know about myself is what Jesus Christ knows about me. In these moments, I see the, his depth of love for me, the depth of his grace. And you know what it does? You know what it yields? It yields the sweet gift of self-acceptance. And that becomes the foundation of how I grow in loving and accepting others. You know, your dream for yourself now, for yourself, your dream over the years may be reshaped and redirected. But these encounters with Jesus will ensure it will not die. When you are confronted by the depth of your innate sinfulness, it is not the time to let your dreams die, but rather a time for repentance and restoration. Don't listen to the devil's lie. You may as well just give up and just keep on sinning. No, run to Jesus. 
Run to the cross. Meet him at the cross where, where he paid for your sins. And run to that empty tomb, the place where he proved in history he is the son of God and has the authority to forgive your sins. So, again, I just pose you the question for your own reflection. Has your dream died? Has your dream died? Under the weight of failure and disappointment and imperfections. Has it died? Or are you as well in a winter season right now? Are you in a winter season? Let me just say this to encourage you, if you're in a winter season, remember this. In winter, while things lie dormant, covered by ice and cold, and there is not any evident fruit or growth, everything is bland and cuddleless. What's happening at that same time? Yeah, what's happening at that same time? The ground is being replenished. The ground is being prepared for seed to fall and grow. And as surely as spring will come in our seasons, spring will come as surely as the seasons change for you if you don't give up. I believe that for my life. I believe it for your life. I believe it for our church. And I believe that for the universal church. The seeds are being planted right now. Seeds that will lead to restoration and to new life. Caleb, if you and Hannah could come up right now. We're going to do something and end here a little differently this morning. We're going to end a little differently this morning. We'll have communion here in a moment. And I want to remind you here about our church, right? About our church. Like, this is not a performance. Caleb and Hannah have not been performing for you. I'm not performing for you. This is not a show that we do. This is not just a lecture. I'm your pastor. This is an organic, alive community bonded and connected through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We're family. We're members of one another. We're the body of Jesus. This is what I'd like you to do this morning as you've been thinking about things. If your dream has died, I would like to give you the opportunity to be prayed for this morning in here as during our service. And so I'd like to ask all of us to right now move into a posture of prayer. Can we just now move from me speaking and you listening, so to speak? Can we move into a posture of prayer? So whatever you need to do to do that, you might slide down on your knees, you might bow your head, you might close your eyes, whatever you do to move into a posture of prayer. And as you do that, can we take a moment and just invite or really to recognize he's been here. Can we, you silently take a moment and recognize his presence is here. His presence. His presence.
So if your dream has died, or if your dream is on life alert, I'd like to invite you just to stand where you are. Just stand up. You don't have to say anything. You don't need to talk about what is going on. I just invite you to stand if that dream is in a perilous place. Here's what I'd like to ask you to do. If you're around that person, if you are standing by them, or if you know them, you see someone standing and you're sitting on the opposite side of the room, but you know them well, just move towards them right now. Move towards them. Or if you're close to them, just gently lay a hand on them and say a prayer. Commit them and commit their dream to the Lord. Just simple prayers. One or two sentences. And I'm just going to be silent for a few moments, but let's make sure, friends, that everybody who's standing has one or two or three people surrounding them, praying for them. And we'll just reconvene here in a few minutes as you pray. Let me just say, if you're not praying or if you're not standing, I want to encourage you to just invite Jesus right now to search your heart. Let him do inventory. If you're sitting, let Jesus right now ask him to do inventory upon your own heart and upon your own dreams, okay?
you're in the middle of praying, just keep praying. If you're praying or not, keep praying. I'm going to just pray behind you. Feel free to keep praying if you're praying. Father, in Jesus' name, we lift up every individual here that stood to say they need restoration. And I ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, to reawaken the dreams of these precious men and women. Lord, reawaken their dreams. Let them face those imperfections honestly. Let them face those weaknesses honestly. But in that gaze that can be so terrifying, because you're sovereign, to see that those eyes are so full of grace and tenderness, that the door of restoration can be opened. We ask for that. those that prayed. If you want to take your communion cup, the, the, the symbols, the signs of his body and blood. And if you didn't pick it up, just feel free. to. They're, they're out there in the lobby. You can pick it up. Our passage this morning speaks beautifully, perfectly to communion. Jesus invited his disciples to a meal around a fire. And they do what we all do around meals. They ate. They laughed. They shared stories. They connected. They enjoyed one another. A meal now in modern life, but especially in the ancient world, a meal spoke of friendship, acceptance, common love. Jesus invites us to a meal symbolized by the bread and by the cup. You're being invited to fellowship and to intimacy with Jesus. And when we take the bread and the cup, we accept that invitation. The bread, his body, the wine, his blood given to us to make an invitation to dine with him. And so now, let's go ahead and Take the bread, if you would, or the wafer. And let's go ahead and take it. The, the bread, the body of Jesus, his life given for us. Let's take it together as a community. symbolizing his blood given for the forgiveness of sins and the establishment of a promise that will last forever. Let's take the juice together. I heard 
precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus
last song I just hope that we can leave here just triumphant just knowing that because of God's love for us that our dreams don't have to die we can rest and find hope in him tries to roll over my bones when sorrow comes to steal the joy I own when brokenness and pain is all I know oh I won't be shaken no I won't be shaken oh cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I
stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Sing it again. Oh, my fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. My fear. Doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love, my fear. Doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. Amen. Let's climb. Yeah. Clap was just resurrected. Clapping and beat. Clapping and beat was just resurrected. Being gone for those five weeks, I didn't have a chance to really endorse Discover Life. And Discover Life is a class that will help. First, if, if, if you're a, uh, one who's seeking this morning, you're not yet a Christian, so glad you're here. Um, or you're a brand new Christian, these three weeks are really helpful to help you understand and to ground you in that faith in Jesus and what it means to be a Jesus follower. For those of us that are already believers, this is a great opportunity for us to show that we are not ashamed of the gospel, that we want to be witnesses for him and to include and invite a friend. I just want to remind you it's only 10 days away. So pray and step out in faith and make that invitation to someone. And if you can't come the first week, then come the second or come the third. Again, they're all three together, very valuable, but each one also stands on its own. So we encourage you to be a part of this really, really critical and important part of our church, our church life. The thing I thought about just asking the Holy Spirit, what, is there anything else here that you'd want us to focus on as we uh, now open up our time for prayer? And if you want to come forward after our service to be prayed for by one of our uh, prayer team members. What came to my mind, perhaps from the Holy Spirit, is that I wonder if some of you right now, the word is detour. I wonder if some of you right now are facing a decision that would not necessarily destroy your dream from here on out, but a decision that would detour your dream. It's an important decision. And one that you maybe sense that if I go that route, boy, that's going to detour my dream for a long time. And so if that's you, if that's, I suspect it is likely some of you this morning that are at that place right now, that, that crossroads, I want to invite you down to pray with one of our prayer team members. And you can share as much or as little. You're completely in control of what you, what you, what you share. Um, but we'll pray. We'll pray for you. Either way, so let's close with a benediction. Now may Christ Jesus be with you. May the love of the Father be on you. And may an intimacy with the Holy Spirit be a part of your life this week. Amen. Amen. Good. Go and serve. <laughs>